Welcome to The Real Spiel with Brian and Kurt. Thank you all for joining us today. We've got a, a content-packed podcast. This is our first podcast on video uh, hosted by ETF Guide. This is going to be the conclusion of season one for us. We're going to cover a couple different things. The hot topic uh, of, of the week, if you will, would be inflation, how Fed, the Fed is going to control uh, inflation or rein it in. Uh, we'll also talk about asset class sensitivities to inflation, the uh, Russia-Ukraine uh, impact on global commodity markets, and we'll touch on some of the you know uh, other inputs in commodities um, as we transition towards kind of this uh, clean energy uh, uh, transition, if you will. So, uh, Kurt, I see you there. Nice to uh, nice to see you. How's it going, Ryan? Everything's good, man. Great to catch up. Absolutely. So let's dive right into it. We just got the CPI print last Friday. Today is Tuesday, June fourteenth. Uh, CPI came in at 8.6%. Uh, and then, you know, another metric that we don't hear too much about is a producer's price index, which came in at 10.8% this morning. Uh, in anticipation of the Fed's announcement on rates tomorrow, uh, I think most are expecting 50 basis points. Some analysts expecting 75 basis points. Let's talk a little bit about the tools that the Fed has at, at its disposal to fight inflation, and then also what kind of tailwinds for inflation have, have kept the Fed on defense uh, this year? Yeah, I mean, th this is a, an extraordinary number that we saw last week, right, Ryan? I mean, we, we were all told by the Fed themselves um, in 2021, this is from Chair Powell himself, that, you know, this, isn't tr this is transitory. And that, that, we're going to have, well, the, whether it's mitigation of COVID effects, other things, you know, it's all going to come back down. And essentially, I think a lot of people thought, OK, I guess I don't need to worry about it. this is a temporary disruption, but it's not, you know, um, it's not fixed. It's not going to grow. It's not, um, you know, intransigent. And, and is, what we find, the future is hard to predict. So um, just like we all thought inflation was going to go up a lot back in 2010, 2011, we, we had huge QE, trillions of dollars of monetary stimulus out of the financial crisis. And we thought that inflation was going to go up, and it didn't. And inflation was pretty anemic during the, the 2010s. That was a great backdrop for stocks and for bonds. We saw low interest rates, low credit spreads, um, you know, a, an incredible decade of returns for equities generally. And now what we're finding is it, as, as hard as it is to predict that inflation will go up, it's equally hard to predict that inflation is going to stay down and go down. And in fact, the opposite is happening. And um, um, I think this is a, just a huge wake up call for the Fed, for markets, for economists, you know, for central bankers around the world. Um, it's a big number. And, and the 8.5 that we saw cause just, just, just a few months ago was the highest that we'd seen in 40 years. This 8.6 print as of last week for May um, is even higher yet. And you mentioned, Ryan, you know, what are the tailwinds, right? And, and, and as I said, the future is hard to predict. So um, things like uh, a land war in Europe fought with machine guns and artillery. I don't think anyone had that in their forecast for 22. I mean, I, I, I think that, um, even as Russia was massing troops on the Ukrainian border, there was a huge amount of skepticism they'd actually roll in. And in fact, it appears that the Russian troops themselves, many of them did not realize this wasn't a training exercise. They were actually going to roll into Ukraine. 
The other thing that's very hard to predict is how does this get resolved? And I mean, I think, I don't know, Ryan, but if you speak for yourself, I, I thought this was going to end pretty quickly, right? I mean, it's the Russian army. <laughs> Three, four months in, and they've, they've really, I would say, disappointed and, and uh, overestimated their capabilities. Absolutely. I mean, we're no more, more than 100 days, and Russia, you know, Russia has not been able to take Kiev. They've not been able to take parts of northern Ukraine. They've now focused their... Um, limited resources and troops in eastern Ukraine, which was already sort of uh, Russian-leaning and where they took uh, pro- or took land and, and uh, resources back uh, maybe in 2014, 15. So all these things are very hey, hard Kurt, to predict. I don't want to interrupt you here, and, and I know we, there's a lot that we can talk about with, with Russia and Ukraine, but just in terms of, again, where the Fed is now and in, in anticipation of, of this, this announcement tomorrow. Sure. Um, you know, what, what are the tools that they have at their disposal, um, you know, to fight inflation? Sure. So I guess we were just recapping how hard some things like critical economically important things like inflation are hard to forecast. They're hard to predict. Well, one of the things the Fed does is they try to support employment. We saw that after the financial crisis, they dropped rates to basically zero for almost a whole decade. Um, combined with other central banks around the world, with um, some of the legislatures, U.S. Congress, Europeans, uh, legislature elsewhere. We had fiscal stimulus, which helped to create employment. Um, Employment is very tight now. Employment is sort of at sort of record lows. Uh, Unemployment is at record lows. So full employment seems to be pretty intact. The other, are, that's one of two jobs the Fed has. The other job they have is to control inflation, and that seems to be sort of um, out of control right now. It, they, they don't have a tight grip on it. It's expanding faster and more furiously than than they anticipated, than the market anticipated. The Fed um, has just those two simple goals: you know, sp- you know, support full employment of the U.S. labor force, and help to control price increases and inflation. Their tools are very limited. They um, really interest rate policy is probably the most effective and direct instrument that they can control. Um, we've all known we all know that the Fed has just begun to hike off of the zero interest rate base. So we have interest rates of around seventy five basis points right now. There's um, it's been announced by the Fed that they plan to hike over the June, July, and fall meeting. If what the Fed has revealed before comes to fruition, you know, we're looking at somewhere between two to two and a half percent interest rates by the end of the year. I know some of the the market noise and the chatter, Ryan, has been about, well, maybe they're going to hike 75 basis points. Maybe because of this huge print, they have to do something more, um, I guess, not severe, but just, just, you know, more intense than what they had messaged earlier just last month. The problem is, we have 8.6% inflation right now. So if the Fed even accelerates, let's say that we hike a little bit more than we thought and we get interest rates to 3% at the end of 22, as of right now, you're still going to be 5 percentage points, 500 basis points behind actual inflation. And we just don't know where it's going to go. Um, you know, I think one thing that's interesting to talk about is you know, what are the things that could support inflation going forward and and could continue this kind of drama that we're seeing? 
Right. And, and so you mentioned, you know, transitory is something that I, I don't think anyone's using anymore in, in, in terms of inflation and entrenched is, is seemingly where we are. Maybe we should talk a little bit about asset class uh, sensitivities to inflation. Um, you know, commodities have have ripped this year. Most commodity indices are up over 40 percent uh, year to date. Equities are down 20 plus percent. You know, when I joined USCF, you know, almost seven years ago, and we began working with one another, a lot of folks were, you know, kind of tepid on, on you know, inflation expectations, but knew we were somewhat behind uh, the eight ball there. It had been a, a tremendous decade um, for equities and a really tough time for commodities. But that that's just the 2010s. And we all suffer from recency bias. And looking, you know, just one decade prior, the 2000s, really equities, you know, for, for the duration, there was some obviously volatility, but largely nothing for that 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 10 year period from from start to finish while commodities did extremely well. Um, so maybe this would be a good time for us to talk about maybe Summer Haven's, you know, 150 years of investable commodities research and, and some of the compelling, you know, research that, that you guys have put out uh, on your website and presented many times on various uh, webinars and at different, um, you know, trade shows and, and, and events. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, that research and what went into it and kind of the, the key findings for, for Summer Haven's 150 years of, of commodities research? Sure, Ryan. I mean, you can see on the kind of wall behind me that we've got these uh, artifacts about commodities and commodity markets that go back hundreds of years. I think investors really didn't start thinking or analysts didn't start thinking about commodities as an asset class broadly until maybe a couple decades ago. But commodities are not new. They've been part of human civilization for thousands of years. In fact, the first futures exchange, uh, which was based around rice contracts in Japan, started almost 500 years ago. So um, these aren't new markets, and they've been tracked in periodicals and newspapers, exchange handbooks for, you know, over 150 years. So Summerhaven went and collected all of that data. And it took us about five years, but we went all the way back to 1871 when what we call the Merck, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange started. And it's a rich source of like, financial history that is really important to informing you know, how things performed in the past and, and can give you a lens about how to think about where we are today in the future. Um, one of the things that came out of that is that you know, there's more than a couple hundred commodities that have traded on exchange, on futures, uh, over the last 150 years. And in the study that we put out uh, and publicized, it's available on our website and other sources, we looked at a, a very simple, equally weighted index of commodity futures um, and compared that to stocks and compared it to bonds. And what we found that was surprising is that the return capture of commodities over this period from 1871 to, or to, to 2018, when the study ended, um, roughly 150 years, the long run return for commodities was comparable to equities. That itself is sort of sensational. And the volatility was comparable. So when you look at it on a risk-adjusted return basis, so something that we call a sharp ratio, where you look at returns compared to volatility, ironically, uh, they both come in about 0.4 over their 150-year history, whether you're looking at essentially the S&P 500 or you're looking at just a very simple 
uh, commodity beta based on diversified commodity futures return. I think that is quite um, contrary to most uh, people's understanding of commodities, that they are that old and that they, uh, over time, generate this risk premium, this return. The other thing, Ryan, I think that came out of it that was really interesting is that inflation is just a big separator of when those returns differ. So commodities and equities in history tend to make money at different times. Yeah, very low correlation. So they have close to zero correlation. Um, If you look at them as lines over the course of 150 years, they dance around each other. So over those decades, when do stocks outperform historically? It tends to be when interest rates are low, when inflation is low, when financial conditions are supportive for equities. Commodities do well when inflation tends to rise, when you have unexpected inflation shocks like the 1970s. Um, and so uh, I think that what we're seeing right now uh, in 22 is this economic factor of inflation affecting these asset class returns. And at least thus far, roughly halfway through 22, it's been very tough for both stocks and for bonds, while commodities have generally performed, um, you know, to, to new highs that we haven't seen for a decade or more. Um, I think that inflation as a, as a key factor in asset class returns is really important for people to keep in mind because, as I said before, we don't know that uh, inflation is transitory. We don't know that COVID is going to go away. The Fed's going to contain inflation. Everything's going to come back to normal. We just don't know. It's unpredictable. And I think um, diversification is one of those few free lunches um, that people can use when they're, you know, forming um, a mix of asset classes. And um, I think things like real assets, we, that's why we do this real spiel uh, broadcast, um, I think are often overlooked and underappreciated. Absolutely. And, and aside from these, you know, inflation shocks we talked about, commodities tend to do well in geopolitical, um, you know, uh, hardships or geopolitical problems like we've seen in Ukraine and, and Russia. So let's to get back on track there. Um, you know, energy makes all the headlines and, you know, it's an extremely important uh, commodity sector. But what a lot of uh people don't realize is, is how many other commodities come out of that region. I mean, 20 to 30% of the global right. wheat production uh, comes out of Ukraine and Russia, uh, nickel. What are some of the other, you know, commodity markets that have been rocked by this, this Ukraine, Russia? Well, I think it's almost impossible to, to overestimate the uh, impact that wheat's going to have on the global food uh, markets and supply. Um, as you said, you know, huge portion in the neighborhood of 25 ish percent of the world's exports of wheat come from this region. But for some region, you know, countries, regions in the Middle East and Africa, we're talking about 80 to 100 percent of their national supply of wheat comes as an import from this region. And they're not going to be available this year. That's a huge deal. I mean, just go back to the Arab Spring that happened really kind of out of um, the you know North Africa along the Mediterranean coast. And a lot of it had to do with inflation related to wheat and insufficient wheat supplies and, and just, you know, national prices increasing to, to create famine or hardship for their local populace. So um, I think that's going to be absolutely something to watch, but it's not just wheat, right? It's corn, it's rye, it's barley. Um, there's a, something called an oil seed, sunflower oil. 
Um, we might see that in the grocery store in the U.S., um, but compared to soybean oil, vegetable oil, or other things, maybe it's not as important in, in the U.S. In Europe, it's critically important. If you go and get fish and chips in the U.K., it's almost certainly fried in sunflower oil. And those exports and that supply is incredibly tight. Prices have gone way up. Uh, a number of, of importers have not been able to meet demand. Um, and then beyond these kind of grains, oil seeds, we've got the metals that you mentioned. I mean, nickel is is a, uh, an important export from Russia, aluminum, copper. We also, you know, substantial amounts of gold come out of this region. So if you were going to pick a geopolitical region of the world that could disrupt commodity markets, it's hard to pick one as intense uh, to, to global supply and demand as the Russian yeah, Ukraine region as the breadbasket of Europe and part, partially the world, but also in terms of these other critical, you know, commodities. And Ryan, we didn't even touch on like things like oil and gas, which, you know, Russia is a huge producer of these. They create a huge amount of their access to foreign currency. Um, and you see that playing out. Um, you see, you know, natural gas prices in Europe, very high. We're seeing gas prices at the pump in the U S now averaging over $5 a gallon for the first time in decades. So, um, you know, it's, we're still, we're still in the weeds in that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, before we wrap it up, Kurt, I just want to, again, kind of, uh, change gears here a little bit and talk about, uh, albeit the slow transition, but it will be unavoidable as we move towards this, this, uh, you know, clean energy, um, transition towards electric vehicles and renewables. Um, you know, it's coming, there's no doubt about it. And you talk about, you know, gas over $5 a gallon um, and, and kind of this push from the administration to go clean. Uh, it's going to take some time, but it is coming. Um, you know, aside, uh, you know, from maybe copper is one that stands out to us. That's a, a critical input for a lot of the, you know, um, storage and, and um, transportation of electricity. What are some of the other commodities um, you think that that will be kind of critical towards this, this transition? Moving yeah. Forward? I mean, I think that's a great point, Ryan. I mean, this is, this is something that's unavoidable. I mean, it's just happening, whether it's in Europe, Asia, or the U.S., in, in the Americas. This shift towards a combination of renewable energy generation, so wind, solar, uh, maybe geothermal, um, other sources of renewable energy, that combined with the, electri the electrification of transportation, so electric trains, electric buses, electric cars, um, it is... It's happening real time. It, it does not change in three months or in six months. Um, but you look at this exponential growth of vehicles on the road that are um, purely electrically powered, so not even hybrid vehicles. And I think we can all see that this shift, this direction is happening with or without government support. The consumers themselves are taking this direction. So what does that mean? What's going to happen? So. I think a couple of things that I would highlight. One is we need to improve our electrical get grid in the United States. It's antiquated. Um, that requires large amounts of aluminum, large amounts of copper. There's, there's nothing that can transmit electricity really as cheaply and efficiently as copper. The only other two metals that can hold a candle to copper are gold and silver. And I think maybe except for Elon Musk's personal Tesla, I don't think we're going to see uh, an electric vehicle wired with, with gold wiring anytime soon. 
So copper is just necessary. You just have to use it. Copper is in relatively tight supply versus demand. And I think that we've talked about supply shocks, things like oil or wheat coming out of Russia, Ukraine, that we expected to be uh, you know, in in global transshipments and available to the broad market, and they're not. It's not just um, decreased supply that can affect prices. It can also be increased demand. Sometimes they can both happen at the same time. So we're seeing a demand shock, I think, in in with respect to copper, with respect to nickel, and some of the metals that are used in electric vehicles and in battery technology. Um, like aluminum is a very plentiful resource, but still requires, uh, you know, uh, an energy intensive process to refine and purify aluminum. And we're seeing things like Ford pickup trucks being made from aluminum chassis and bodies. Um, aluminum is lightweight. It lends itself towards something that whether it's an aircraft or a vehicle that could be fuel efficient. Um, I don't know that the world is ready to meet this new demand um, for for copper and other critical industrial metals as we inevitably transform, you know, our energy generation and our, and our mode of transportation towards this, this green energy. So I think that's a long-term interesting space to watch. Um, on the supply side for things like copper, uh, you know, it, it's also geographically constrained. You see most of the copper, say 40 plus percent of the world's copper or comes from Peru and Chile. Chile has a, a new national leader, Boric, who is who was came into power last year. He's you know um, fairly liberal. He's pro labor. He's pro environment. He's blocked a new mine from expanding based on environmental concerns and potential hazards to water supply from their um, from their kind of mountaintop you know glacial storage of, of frozen water. So. All of those things say we could be seeing at the same time slightly tighter supply while we're seeing what could be a sustained growth in demand. And I, I think that's a very interesting set for metals generally. Absolutely. I think that that'll do it for us, Kurt. Um, this is the 12th episode that we've put out uh, for the real spiel. This will be the end of our, our season one. We'll be back at the end of summer with some new uh, content and, and research to share with you all. Definitely appreciate ETF Guide for having us. Uh, thank you all for joining. You can subscribe at your favorite podcast platform or service. You can also find our other podcasts on uscfinvestments.com. And we'd love to hear from you as well. You can uh, shoot us an email at therealspiel at uscfinvestments.com. And uh, we look forward to uh, reconnecting with you at the end of